Okie doke. I think uh, some of the, uh, the parents come back to, to join us now, so we'll, we'll kick off. Um, I'll hand over to Alan. Alan's kindly going to, uh, to do the reading for me, so it's great. So uh, let me just pray for Al before he, before he comes up. Lord, we just um, thank you for Alan, Lord. We just thank you for all the time and effort he's put into bringing us your word this morning. Lord, we just pray that your spirit moves amongst us, Lord, in these challenging passages. And we, Lord, we just want to have our eyes and our ears open to what you have to say to us as a fellowship this morning. Lord, we just bless Alan as he comes to preach this morning. Lord, we pray that in your precious name. Amen. Thanks, Duke. Uh, so I'm going to do the reading. Um, it is chapters 7 and 8 from Book of Hebrews, uh, but I'm going to start with just the last verse of uh, chapter 6 because it links in. Uh, so, um, 6 verse 20. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf and having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, a priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, a king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended uh, from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him uh, who had the promises. It is beyond who had the promises. Sorry, uh, let's try it. Am I pressing the right thing? Okay, who had the promises. Now, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by, whom, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Uh, one might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, 
for under it the people received the law. Uh, what further need would ha have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for the, those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to offer something to, to, to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. 
Uh, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than, he, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declare the Lord, declares the Lord, and I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And sh they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So that's chapters 7 and 8. Um, quite a lot in there. And it includes uh, this rather mysterious and unknown Melchizedek person. And we, we might sort of wonder, uh, why, why pick on such an obscure character uh, to, to dive into? And the Jewish reader, because of their Jewish tradition, uh, would actually have a bit more familiarity. And so maybe we have a bit of catch-up to do. Um, but... As non-Jewish believers, I would say we might also have some reshaping of our thinking too. See, I certainly started out um, thinking that in the Old Covenant, you now the Jews had their temple, the priests, and all the animal sacrifices, and it was imp important, uh, but important just as a picture like an acted-out parable or symbols, all to point to Jesus. And, well, Jesus has now come and fulfilled all that the old covenant uh, were pointing to. And we, the church, now have the new covenant, which supersedes the old. And all those old covenant practices are now done away with. So we don't have temples, we don't have priests. And so what we look forward to is the Jews joining us in the new covenant. Now, over time, I actually begin to see how one-sided such a thinking and understanding is. You see, to begin with, uh, let's go to chapter 8. 
chapter 8, the author tells us about God bringing in a new covenant. A covenant that is, well, a covenant is a contract between two parties. It's an agreement of what each side will do so that they can both enjoy that relationship. But God had to establish a new covenant. Well, not because there was a fault with the covenant itself, but because the people. And people just could not keep their side of the uh, agreement. So God says he will put in place a new covenant. But do you see here who he establishes that new covenant with? See, it's, it's with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The new covenant is with the same original people of God. It's with the Jews. There is only one new covenant, and it's with the Jews. That's it. There is not a separate covenant with the Gentiles. There's no new covenant with the Gentiles. And the new covenant is not even a New Testament creation. You see this section, whole section here about the new covenant? Well, that's a direct quotation from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah prophesied in the Old Testament, right up to the point where Judah was conquered and when the temple was burned to the ground. And long after the northern kingdom Israel had been taken into exile. So by then, there was no temple, no sacrifices. God's people had been taken from the promised land. So clearly, the old covenant has come to a halt. And then at this point, God said he would establish a new covenant, a better covenant, one that would work despite the fault of the people. And it will be with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. God is a faithful God. He's not going to forget his commitment, nor his people, despite their covenant-keeping faults. It will be a rebuilding of the house of Judah and Israel. And how we Gentiles we who are not of the house of Judah and Israel, how we get to benefit from this, of course, is by the grafting in, grafting into that same house. So we don't have Jewish roots, but we get to benefit of Jew the Jewish roots none the same through the grafting in. And that is why when we come to passages uh, such as um, Hebrews 7 and 8, it actually pays to see the, such, such passages uh, from a Jewish angle. And in particular, we don't have any experience or much thought on priests. See, we can go through a month of Sundays without the word or the thought of, of them coming up. But in the first covenant, priests were absolutely central and all important. Because when, pre, when people brought their sacrifices to the temple, 
It was the priest who did the offering on behalf of the people. And actually, only the priests could do offering of sacrifices. So without priests, there'll be no sacrifices. Without sacrifices, there's no forgiveness of sins and no drawing near to God. And so without priests, we remain alienated from God. So priests are absolutely central in the worship of Yahweh God. And it is still something that we, new covenant believers, need to keep in mind. Because as we'll see from our passage today, when God ushered in the new covenant, God did not simply do away with priesthood. Indeed, what he did was he gave us a better priesthood. A priesthood that is, so a priesthood is still central to the worship of God. And that is where we, non-Jewish believers, have some catch-up to do. But for the Jewish believers, though, uh, who already understood well the place and the need for priests, they come to this with a different issue. You see that uh, verse in Numbers 18 there? This is God speaking to Aaron. And God says, only the sons of Aaron are allowed to be priests. Birth records and proof of lineage are absolutely necessary qualifications to be priests. So when the exiles returned to Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah, um, there were some from that family, that line, who could not produce the family record to show that they really were from the line of Aaron. And so they were not allowed to minister as priests. So lineage was all important. Now this picture here is the family tree of Jacob. So Jacob at the top and then you've got the 12 sons forming the 12 tribes. Now Aaron is from the tribe of Levi. So only the descendants of Levi are allowed to work in the temple. And then specifically, only the descendants of Aaron could be priests. So it's very specific. So here comes then that question. As pointed out in verse 14, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is from the tribe of kings, not from the tribe of priests. So by law, you see, kings were especially not allowed to be priests. There was once when King Uzziah burnt incense in the temple, uh, which was, of course, a priestly duty. Uh, He was told he shouldn't do it. He did it anyway. And at that point, leprosy broke out immediately over his body. So now when we say Jesus offered himself up as the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, the offering that he was doing, well, that was the job of the priest. He was both the sacrifice and the priest offering the sacrifice. Now, we Gentile believers might have not thought much about that, but that's okay. 
But a Jew would immediately see that to be an issue. A non-Levite, a non-descendant of Aaron, a non-priest is not allowed to offer sacrifice. A sacrifice offered by a non-priest is not accepted by God. So, while Jesus might be himself the perfect sacrifice, yet, because he was not from the tribe of Levi, he could not actually offer himself as sacrifice to God. And as such, the death of Jesus would have no sacrificial value. Uh, a very legitimate question indeed. But you can see where this would lead to. And so, the writer of Hebrews steps in right here at this point to explain not merely how Jesus from the tribal Judah could actually be priest, but indeed he's, got, he's going to say that Jesus holds an even better priesthood than the one from the line of Aaron. The, the writer leads his Jewish readers to Psalm 110, uh, which we know, and they know, they would clearly know it's a messianic psalm. And we've already come across this back a few weeks ago, back in chapter 1. Um, and at that time, we read that Yahweh was speaking of the Messiah as a ruler. That was in verse 2. But had we actually gone on to read to verse 4 in that psalm, we would have seen Yahweh continuing on to address the Messiah as priest. So, ruler and priest, two in one. And not only that, some years later, many years later, God told the prophet Zechariah uh, to put a crown on the high priest at the time, who was called Joshua. Joshua, actually the same root name in Hebrew as Jesus. And God told Zechariah to put this crown on the priest, and it was like an acted-out parable. And then God said these words uh, in Zechariah, and God said, he called the Messiah, which is the branch here, uh, he called the Messiah and he said that he will both rule on his throne and be priest on his throne. And then actually verse 13 goes on to say, and there will be harmony between the two. So while it was a good question for some observant Jew and to notice and then ask, how could Jesus, from the line of the kings, how could that he then also be a priest? Yet, it was also something that God had foreseen, pre-decreed, unexplained. And what's the explanation? The explanation that Jesus' priesthood is not from the line of Aaron or Levi, but it is in the order of Melchizedek. And um, at this point, maybe even some of the original Jewish readers would sort of scratch their heads and think, Melchizedek? Uh, who? Uh, so the writer starts in chapter 7 then with recounting uh, what happened in Genesis 14. Um, Abraham had won a great battle rescuing his nephew Lot. Uh, who had been taken hostage when the city of Sodom was attacked. 
And when Abraham returned victorious, two kings came out to meet him, and one of them was Melchizedek. And Genesis 14, these three verses in Genesis, is the sum total of all that we know about Melchizedek. So in comparison with many other people in Genesis, where we know how long they lived, where they lived, who their ancestors were, who, how they married, and so on, the Bible actually tells us very little directly about Melchizedek. But even so, we still know a few things. And these are the very things that the writer to the Hebrews now point to. And his key message is that while Aaron and uh, Levi are descendants um, of Abraham, so they are below Abraham, well, Melchizedek was from the time of Abraham. And actually, someone that Abraham himself recognized as superior to him. And how do we know that? Well, it's because Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe. Abraham was not compelled by some law or anything. You know, the law of Moses and tithing would not appear for hundreds of years yet. But Abraham tithed simply because he recognized he was before a superior. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham, which, as verse 7 points out, uh, is without doubt, no question, that the inferior is blessed, blessed by the superior. So even the great father Abraham himself knew and treated Melchizedek as superior and treated him as a priest. And also a key message here is that Melchizedek was both priest and king, two in one. While the priests which were in the line of Aaron were by law separate, separated from kings. So when Jesus, of the tribe of Judah, and thus of the line of the kings, when Jesus had his priesthood, not from Aaron, but from Melchizedek, then Jesus actually had a priesthood that is superior to that of the ordinary temple priests, and indeed even superior to the high priest Caiaphas. So even if Jesus had merely been in a priest in the line of Melchizedek, he would already have had a superior priesthood. But more than that, even Melchizedek himself would look up to Jesus as a superior priest. Because Melchizedek would say he's like a prototype or an early model of Jesus. Melchizedek was like a sneaky peek, not a preview of Jesus to come. So instead of arguing what aspects of Jesus uh, uh, that were actually like Melchizedek to show why Jesus is a priest of the line of Melchizedek. Our writer to the Hebrews, in fact, does it the other way around. He goes the other way around to show how Melchizedek from long ago is actually an early pointer to Jesus. And he uses that Genesis 14 passage to show us this. So, for example, 
um, the name Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek means my king is righteousness. Now, there is none righteous except Jesus who committed no sin and neither was deceit found in his mouth. Well, that's the testimony of Peter confirming the prophecy of Isaiah. So just even just the meaning of the name Melchizedek alone already points to Jesus. And then Melchizedek is king of Salem. Salem is the early name for Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, meaning the city of peace. So Melchizedek as the king of the city of peace is pointing to Jesus as the prince of peace. Ephesians 2 says Jesus himself is our peace, not merely by creating in himself one new man now in place of the division that is between the Jews and Gentiles, so he's making peace, but Jesus is peace because he reconciles us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God. And the writer then goes on to say, points out that Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, meaning, I would think it's meaning here, that it's a contrast to all the other Gen Genesis characters that we know, where we are given the genealogy. And the writer here is using this deliberate silence as a pointer to Jesus, uh, Jesus who has no, a human mother but no human father. And so the lack of genealogy given for Melchizedek is a pointer to Jesus. And then the writer points to Melchizedek as having rec no recorded days, beginning of days, nor end of life. And that's another picture of Jesus, who while he had a beginning as a man, yet as God the Son, Jesus always was and is and is to come. And Jesus is alive now and continues to be priest and priest forever. So Melchizedek and Jesus have a lasting priesthood in contrast to that of the temple priest uh, whose priesthood is granted and governed by um, the law of Moses. So, for example... The law says only the descendants of Aaron could be priests. But also it says that um, only the people from that tribe could only be priests between the ages of 25 and 50. So it's far from permanency. Uh, priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, however, not based on some legal regulations, but on the power of an indestructible life which is why Jesus is priest forever. So Jesus has a, a priesthood that is superior because it's, it lasts, it lasts, it's forever. And in all this, the writer is pointing out that Jesus not only was completely allowed to offer himself a sacrifice because he was fully qualified as priest, but Jesus' priesthood is even superior to that of the temple priest from the line of Aaron. So, from all the previous priests uh, only became priests 
uh, simply through the hereditary line. There was never a divine swearing in. Jesus, however, uh, became priest through an oath of God. The Lord God Most High himself confirmed Jesus' eternal priesthood by oath. So who can top that? So, if Jesus' priesthood is all superior, then the question is, why hang on to the old? Especially when, so 7 verse 11, the old, the Levitical priesthood and the whole system of animal sacrifice could not obtain perfection for the people. 7 verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. And that which is not perfect cannot come before God who is perfect. So unless people could be made perfect by the old priesthood, then it is, 7 verse 18, then it's just weak. And indeed it says it's useless. So why hang on to the useless? The animal sacrifices Verse 7, verse 27, it says, they were made daily. So each sacrifice had at least, oh, at best, a shelf life of 24 hours. So that's far from perfect, isn't it? Now, hardly of any use if you're trying to gain an eternity with God, if you then have to make daily sacrifices. In fact, the author goes on to say in 8 verse 4, those temple priests and temple sacrifice were only a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Shadows have no actual substance. Now Moses gave them very accurate instructions, all right, and then they carried it out accurately, but they were still only just enacting copies. Copies. Look at this picture. Pictures taken in Shenzhen, China, and then the middle one, Hangzhou, China, and then the one on the right, Karachi, Pakistan. Now, however accurate, exact, true to detail, however authentic looking, however good the build quality these are, we know they are only replicas. They are not the real thing. They're just copies. They are shadow of the real thing. And when you can have the real thing, would you have your photo taken with these replicas? When you can have Jesus, why chase after replicas? And that's the question the author is asking his Jewish readers. And that's also the question to us today. You see, as interesting and as intriguing as Melchizedek and all the details about him might be. Like, could he actually have been Shem, the son of Noah? Well, yes, possibly. Um, But Melchizedek himself would say, why are you looking at me when I'm pointing you to Jesus? Why are you fascinated by the road sign instead of following it to the destination. As intriguing as the details of Melchizedek might be, far more important 
is actually the consequence, the consequence of Jesus being the eternal king priest. And the consequence, it says in verse 25 there, the consequence of all that, the consequence of all that is that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost since he is he always lives to make intercession. So just how is Jesus able to save to the uttermost? It is because he always lives to make intercession. Intercession is the job of the priest to bring people before God. You know, the Jewish high priest, there's a picture of one there. The Jewish high priest used to wear a breastplate on, around there, and it contained 12 precious stones. And those stones were meant to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the people. So that, him wearing that is meant to symbolize, firstly, that the priest is to hold the people close to his heart. And secondly, the whole thing is strapped over the shoulders. So secondly, it's to symbolize him lifting the people up, bearing the weight of the people on his shoulders. And that is what Jesus is doing now, continually in heaven, before God our Father, having us close to his heart and bearing us up. Jesus is doing the job of the high priest of the new covenant, continually making intercession for his people. When the text says Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, save for all eternity, since he always lives to intercede, then the text is also saying our salvation for all eternity is fully dependent on Jesus' continuous intercession. If Jesus happened to stop for a moment, we would be in trouble. Jesus' continual job is that critical. But he does always live to intercede. And that is then our security our salvation is secure, but only because Jesus continuously intercedes. Now, if we know that there is someone who is continuously on the lookout for us, always watching over us, like a parent hovering over a young toddler who's just begun to walk, and that is what Jesus is doing for us all the time, Wherever we are, should we then not respond with awe and gratitude and much more? Can there be times when we do not actually know how to thank our Savior? Because Jesus is not just about the cross, as enormous as that really was. Jesus' atoning work of sacrifice was done once for all on the cross, and Jesus sits but Jesus does not rest because his priestly intercession work continues on and he intercedes for us. For example, 
He, inter he intercedes that we, our being, might be transformed daily to that which is ever more pleasing in God's sight. He intercedes that we, as his body, may be one, that we might be sanctified in the truth, that we might be guarded against the schemes of the prowling evil one, or that our faith may not fail when the evil one tries to shake us like sifting wheat, and so on. That is what, why Jesus is priest forever of the order of Melchizedek and not of the earthly order of Aaron, which is only a copy and a shadow. And that is why the new covenant is not about getting rid of priests, but rather it's about having a much better priest, one who makes continuous intercession, one who has us close to his heart, one who bears us up in his prayer, one who advocates for us, one who continually pleads without ceasing for us before the Almighty. Do we get the weight of importance of this rather Old Testament-sounding passage? The priest in the Old Testament was all-important, but it is even more important in the New Covenant because the priest now is none other than God the Son himself continually interceding for. Actually, do you see who is interceding for? Let's not overlook that bit. Verse 25 Jesus saves those who draw near to God through him. Jesus saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Not those who once drew near, not those who in the future might one day draw near, it's those who draw near now and keep on drawing near, just as Jesus draw, it, it intercedes now and continually intercedes. It's a present continuous tense. It's an ongoing action. Now, in truth, even the drawing near is not something we can do just on our own strength and willpower, because we are weak and we are fickle. Even the drawing near is something we need our Savior's intercession for. But it calls, the text calls on us to draw near to God. If you've never drawn near to God before, or even thought about drawing near to God, then the question now is, why are you staying away? The Word of God actually urges us it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. So why not draw near today? Now. Because there's a great promise in the Bible. And this is from the God of truth who does not lie, who cannot lie. And the Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God does not spurn those who draw near to him. 
And if we have drawn near and we are already grafted in, then I know of no better way to finish this morning than to read the exhortation back in Hebrews chapter 4. And it says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, then let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then, therefore, let us then, therefore, let us with and with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time to help in the time of need. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we don't know why you would want people like us to draw near because we are not worthy and we are rebellious by nature. And we are like those people from the first covenant. Yes, we have faults, but you have opened the way. And Lord Jesus, you intercede. You call on us, and you're calling on us to draw near to you each and every moment as you each and every moment intercede for us. What a picture, what a reality. What a great high priest. What a blessing. Thank you, Lord, that it isn't just salvation 20 years ago and you get on on your own but it is you holding us lifting us up placing us before the throne of God placing us in front and pleading and uh, advocating you are for us wow you are for us would I even be for myself but you are for us. Lord, we praise you, we give you thanks, and Lord, we worship you. Amen.